I would invite you to turn in a Bible to Mark chapter 4. We're going to continue this series, um, the, the Gospel Way, as we walk through the Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. And the title of this sermon, as you can see in your bulletin, is The Way of Parables, Part 2. We did The, the Way of Parables, Part 1. Last week, we looked at the parable of the sower and the explanation of that parable. And this week, we're going to look at three more I don't know, seemingly disconnected parables, but I think they're all connected for a reason. And and what I want to put before you, the thesis statement, as you can see there also in your bulletin, is that the parables of Jesus, the parables proclaim the progression of the kingdom. I think we're going to see as we examine these three parables that the kingdom is going to have a definite beginning. It's going to have a definite purpose, a definite telos, a definite uh, progression, and then an ultimate consummation, an ultimate end. And so I'm going to read Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34, um, pray, and then we'll get to work here. So hear now God's holy and inspired and life-giving word, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. And Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? And not on a stand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a God of revelation, a God who gives us pictures, a God who discloses himself to us in your word. And Father, you tell us that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose that you give it. And so, Father, we ask that your word would indeed accomplish its purpose today, that by the reading and the preaching of your word, the Holy Spirit would work on the hearts and minds of your people, that we would be convinced and convicted and comforted and converted Um, Lord, that you would show up, that you would do a work of your spirit so that these words are not merely human words being said in a place, but that they are the words of you for your people, for the building of your kingdom. Father, we ask for humble hearts. We ask for ears that you would dig out so that we might hear. We ask for eyes that would have scales removed so that we might see exactly who you are and what you're doing in this text. Father, we pray... Uh, especially today for those who might have hard hearts, for those who might not have eyes to see, that you would open those maybe even for the first time today. Lord, we trust that you can do this by the power of your Spirit. 
We love you, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Uh, The Gospel of Mark is the most action-oriented of the Gospels. Um, One of the the favorite phrases that Mark uses is, and immediately. And so there's this narrative that that is just being marched forward with a sense of urgency almost. And what we've done so far is we've seen a lot of this narrative of Jesus' life and teaching. And what, where we're at now in Mark 4 is, is a, a little bit of an interruption. We're going to interrupt your regularly scheduled narrative, and we're going to have an extended time into the actual content of Jesus' teaching. We've read and heard that he is teaching. We have seen responses to his teaching, and now we're in, in the kind of smack dab in the middle of the actual content of what he's doing. And what he's doing at this point is he's said the first parable, the parable of the sower. And, right, and we talked last week how there was a, an exposure and an encouragement. When Jesus taught that parable, he was exposing those who didn't have ears to hear. And he was encouraging those that did have ears to hear. So he was exposing a non, the non-believers, the unbelievers, and encouraging his people. Well, this week, he gets into this more particular slice of what it means to live in the kingdom, of what God's kingdom looks like. And the first thing that we see, the first thing that I want you to see, is that the kingdom of God has this definite beginning. And the beginning of the kingdom is this revelation of the Messiah. So in verse 21, in the middle of all this agricultural imagery, All these seeds, all these farmers, all this growing, Jesus switches it up. And he says, we're going to talk about light and lamps now. And he says, using facts and logic, you don't bring light into a room and then put it under a bed. That's dumb. That's silly. That's foolish. You don't bring a light into the room and put it under a basket. You bring light into the room, you bring a lamp into the room, and you put it on a stand so that all might see, so that it might illuminate what's going on. You see, this is very clearly and very really, in a sense, what God is doing with Jesus. We know from other places in in the New Testament, for example, the Gospel of John chapter 8, that Jesus is the light that has come into the world, right? And we know from the letter to the Colossians that Jesus, as the light who has come into the world, is the fullness of God on earth, the full expression of God's deity. And so Jesus has come into the world as an expression of God, as a revelation of God, to illuminate who God is, and to illuminate, to establish God's kingdom here on earth. And Jesus isn't just pulling this out of nowhere. He's not just arbitrarily picking lamps, I think, as a, as a picture. There's a very definite Old Testament background, an Old Testament picture to this as well. There's lots of light in the Old Testament, right? God in the very beginning said, let there be light. God led his people by light in the pillar of fire in the Exodus. But... But, but, but there's a very specific lamp imagery in the Old Testament as well, particularly in the Psalms. In Psalm 119, we, we see that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so the lamp is kind of a, a metaphor and an embodiment of God's instruction to his people. But not only God's instruction, it's actually God's Messiah. We learn from Psalm 132, verse 17, I have prepared a lamp. For my anointed, the Hebrew word there is Mashiach. The English translation would be Messiah. So there's this very clear Messianic Old Testament imagery of lamp being both God's instruction, but also God's anointed, God's Messiah. And so we learn as we examine the Gospel of Mark that it's only 
fellowship with this Messiah, only fellowship with this Messiah that's going to give illumination and knowledge and kingdom understanding and kingdom participation. When Jesus began his ministry, after the initial ministry of John the Baptist, he begins his ministry by saying what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe in the gospel. And so even from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus, as the Messiah who has come into the world, is telling us, is teaching us that in order to participate in what he's doing, there has to be a change of mind, a revelation, a change of heart, of repentance, turning away from your sin, and belief in him. The word made flesh, God's instruction incarnate to us. So you are going to understand the kingdom and participate in the kingdom to the degree to which you understand and have participation with Jesus, the Messiah, through faith and repentance. And so those who don't repent and believe, those who don't have ears to hear, those who don't who have eyes to see are going to be in the darkness, as it were, and the truth is going to be veiled from them. I want to take a moment and ask the kids here. Kids, y'all like playing hide and seek. Yeah? What are, what's, what, Graham, what's your favorite place to hide? Behind the clothes? In the mall? Oh, we used to all do that. Yeah, what about you, Aaron? Hiding under the bed? That's, I can't fit under there, so that's a good spot. Any other favorite spots? Caleb, what's your favorite spot to hide? Ooh, that is cheating. Straight up locking your, the, your mom out. Now, kids, I'll ask one more question. When you play hide and seek, do you want to be found? No. But like forever? You just want to hide forever? No. Right, so eventually you want to be found, right? So you want to hide for as long as you're playing the game, but when the game's over, you're like, I'm actually here, feed me dinner, right? You, you don't want to hide forever, but you want to obscure yourself for a certain amount of time as it's, as it's appropriate, right? As you're playing the game. This is how God is operating throughout history, all right? So Jesus, as he's teaching the parables, is both at the same time telling the truth, but obscuring the truth, all right? It's this weird thing, and God, that's, that's happened in the Old Testament. If you think back to the Old Testament and the stories that, that you've learned from your parents or that you've learned at church, God has revealed himself particularly to particular people, right? Created Adam and Eve, gave him a job. Called Noah, build an ark, do your thing. Called that man Abram and said, I'm going to make you a, a great nation, a family, and in you all the world is going to be blessed. And that became Israel. And for a while, God spoke to Israel. God revealed his law to Israel. God gave Israel the priests, the sacrificial system. God gave Israel kings. And that was how God communicated his revelation to his people. It was through Israel. It wasn't to everybody else. So in a sense, God obscured himself in a way. God concealed himself to other people and revealed himself to Israel. But now, but now, the Messiah has come from that family of Abraham and has brought light into the world. And so it's not just limited to Israel. It is now the light of the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him, not just Jew, but Jew and Gentile, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
And so the revelation was concealed, but now it is revealed in Christ. The light has come into the whole world and is lighting up the world. But, but it is still obscured in the sense that if you don't have eyes to see, if you don't repent and believe, you're not going to be a part of it. Now, this is relevant to us in a lot of ways to understand that the beginning of the kingdom, both on earth and in our own lives and our own participation, has to do with Jesus establishing and revealing that. And that matters to us for two reasons. Well, a lot of reasons, but I'm going to highlight two. One, we are so want to, to, to build our own kingdoms. That's kind of our sin nature, to reject the kingdom that God has established and say, nope, I'm going to go my own way. That's the very first sin we see in the book of Genesis. God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit of that tree. They go their own way. They eat the fruit, and sin enters the world. We go to Genesis 11. Uh, The people build up this tower because they want to make a name for themselves. God says, nope, I'm going to scatter that, and you're going to go your own way. So we as sinful, fallen people have it embedded in in our DNA, in our bodies, in our souls to want to go our own way and build our own kingdoms. There was a... I'm not going to name it, but there was a very famous podcast came out a few years ago. It had to do with the rise and fall of a certain church out in Seattle. And if you listen to that podcast, if you're familiar with that story, one of the things that that pastor who rose to great prominence and popularity was famous for was building the brand. There was a brand that was associated with it. And if you weren't on board with the brand, you were going to be in a pile of bodies behind the bus. And so that's an expression, I think, of a sinful idea of wanting to build your own kingdom. And, and we might not do that on that same scale, but we as God's as sinful people, you know, we want to build our own platform, our own brand, our own thing, where we want to build our own 401k, we want to build our own family traditions apart from what God has said. But at the same time, and this is really funny, I think, not only do we want to build our own kingdoms, we want to build our own brands, but we are desperate for somebody to tell us what to do. We are desperate for a, a, a person to come in and tell us how to live and what to do. There is a reason why Jordan Peterson got famous and popular. And he wrote his, what was his famous book? Twelve Rules for Life. Right? We are desperate as fallen people that want, we want somebody to tell us what to do, to give us a shape and a framework for our lives. Just think about what you see on social media in terms of the whole rise of the influencer. We, we love it when people give us suggestions of what to buy, what to wear, how to work out, what to eat. My YouTube is inundated with Huel right now. It is really telling me that I need to stop making meals and just get this powdered stuff and, and eat it. And it's going to make me a more effective man. So we love... If you don't know what Huel is, just Google it. <laughs> Not right now. We love people telling us what to do. We love getting direction because we, cra- we need it. As sinful people, we are want to just go our own way. So we love tell- have people telling us what to do. And we often, so often, don't go to the one who made us and who gave us life and who revealed the fullness of God to us. We do this even in Christian circles where, look, we have our own pet preachers. You've got YouTube, you've got podcasts, you can listen to the greatest preachers in the world right now. You've got access to all kinds of books and blogs and theologians. You can have your own favorite preachers. But are you being formed by the one whom they're writing about? Or are you being formed by them? 
Look, we as Protestant Christians, we don't have a pope. You know, the pope is the head of the church for the Roman Catholic Church. We broke away from that. We don't believe that the pope is the head of any church. We believe that the church is the kingdom of God on earth and Jesus is the head. But so often we functionally act like our favorite bloggers or preachers or internet Christian personality influencers. Those are our functional popes. And I would, and I would urge you, I would encourage you to ask the question, are you being more formed by famous internet personalities and preachers or are you being more formed by Jesus, by God revealed in the flesh, recorded in the words of Scripture? It's not wrong to have favorite preachers. I have my own few. But we as God's people are called to be formed by Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the revelation of God in the flesh, more so than we are than any other person on earth. We are called to be a part of his kingdom that he came to reveal and establish, not others. And so then Jesus goes on to say in verses 23 and 24, if you have ears to hear, hear this, and understand that as you participate in this kingdom, this kingdom that Jesus came to establish, if you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see, you're going to get more and more and more and more knowledge and understanding and growth. That's how it works. But if you don't, even what you think you have is going to be taken away. And so do you have ears to hear that Jesus is the one establishing and revealing his kingdom? Because rejection of that is going to lead to eternal separation from the king and his kingdom. And that's going to happen as the purposes of the kingdom unfold into judgment. And so that let's look at point number two, the purpose of the kingdom and any good story, any good narrative is going to have um, a beginning, it's going to have a high point and a climax, and it's going to have a consummation and an end. And so Jesus didn't just come into the world to be a religious teacher. He didn't come in to simply be a religious innovator. He didn't come in even to be a wonderful martyr who died this glorious death in, in response to his cause. He came to be the Messiah, which meant he came on a mission a mission to fulfill God's purposes for him in his life. And that is to seek and save his people, to, to save his people for they belong to him. And so we've already seen in verse 26, we, we've already been primed to understand the kingdom of God in agrarian farming terms. And here in verse 26, Jesus says, suppose the kingdom is like a man that scatters seeds and then watches them grow. Sleeps night and day, rises night and day, and the seeds grow on their own. The earth produces at first the blade, and then the fruit, and then the full grain, and then it's harvest time. Kids, can you make a seed grow? How, what do you do if you have a seed? Yes, Graham. You plant it. What else do you do? You eat it? Oh, yeah. I mean, eventually, absolutely, eventually. Or pumpkin seeds. I eat pumpkin seeds. Yeah, what do you think, Adam? You add water, you, you add sun. It's not like, so this guy seems like a bad farmer. He just throws the seed and this does nothing. He doesn't do anything to cultivate the seed. He doesn't, he doesn't add water. He doesn't, he doesn't weed. He just throws the seed and he just stops. And God is not giving us a, an instruction on how to do your garden. This would be a bad way to do your garden. But what God, I think what Jesus is doing here in this parable is he's highlighting, to one sense, the inactivity of the farmer, the inactivity of the man. He's not watering the seeds. He's not even eating them right away. Um, but he throws them out there, and he watches them unfold. And it's this process over time where it goes from seed to shoot and eventually to the full maturity until the harvest. And so what Jesus is highlighting here 
is that not that the kingdom is slow necessarily, but that the kingdom is going to process. The kingdom is going to go through a progression. And guess what? It's mysterious. It doesn't always look flashy. It doesn't always make sense. But as sure as a seed goes into the ground and comes up without us knowing how the mechanisms all work, the kingdom is going to progress and it's going to grow. And right, and we've already talked about that a little bit right? in the Old Testament. There's precedence for that. Adam and Eve to Noah, to Abraham, to David. There was this growing progression of God's people throughout the Old Testament. And it happened slow, and it happened certain, and it happened over time. But eventually, the kingdom kind of blooms in full form through Jesus the Messiah. All of those prophets, all of those priests, all of those kings in the Old Testament were the seed growing to have Jesus fully bloom and come into his kingdom and establish his kingdom here on earth. And it took a long time, and God did that on purpose, but the rule and reign of Jesus is the fruit of all that seed growing. And here's the thing that we have to understand as New Testament believers, as on the other side of Jesus, that God's kingdom now is going to grow in the same way. It's going to be slow. It's going to be at times imperceptible, but it's going to be certain, and it's going to be sure, and it's going to march toward the end and the purpose and the telos that God has designed for it. You see, our book of church order and our confession in the Presbyterian church, the kingdom of God is the church. Where the church is where the gospel is rightly preached, where the sacraments are rightly administered, that is the expression of the kingdom of God. And so when a church gets planted, when churches grow, when Christians grow, there is the kingdom growing and flourishing. And so we have to ask the question, all right, if if God's kingdom is going to grow in God's way, in God's time, by God's means, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to sit there like the farmer and just wait and just sleep and expect that magically stuff is going to happen? Well, no, no. Those things that I mentioned, the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, that stuff isn't magic. We talked about that last week. They don't work ex opere operato, which is a Latin word for by the doing it is done. Just because you sit and listen to sermons or take communion, that stuff doesn't work by magic. That just happens and you get formed more in the image of Jesus. No, it it works because God's Spirit is at work doing the things that God has said He's going to do, namely, grow His kingdom. If you are a believer, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, and you're a part of this, even though it might seem slow and imperceptible, and it might not seem like a big deal to go to church every Sunday, but that is the slow and ordinary means by which God grows his people and grows his kingdom. And you can be honest, and we can be honest, that it looks, it's not that impressive a lot of the times. There is a, a severe ordinariness and almost boringness to the Christian life sometimes, where it's like, that's all? I, you're asking me to go to church and listen to some guy talk for too long? Like, that's what you want me to do to grow, Jesus? Yeah, that, that's, that's really it. The ordinary things of the Christian life, the ordinary means of grace, that is sufficient for growth. One of my favorite books that I ever read, I did youth ministry for about 15 years before I came here, and um, there's a book called Sustainable Youth Ministry. It's a really good youth ministry book. And in it, this guy talks about how there are two kids 
grew up in his church. And one kid, this girl, was really involved in all the youth ministry. She was on a leadership team. She was there in Sunday school. She was there Sunday night. She was there Wednesday night. She was all in on the youth ministry. She didn't have the greatest Sunday morning worship attendance, but she was really, in everything else, she was all in. There was another kid that never came to any of youth ministry stuff. Never came to youth group, never went to a small group, never went on the mission trip. But he was there generally pretty much every Sunday with his family. And as these two kids grow up and they go off to college, the girl that was all in and did all the extra things, she stopped walking with Jesus. But the other kid who faithfully went to church with his parents, and that's all he did, that kid grew up and was actually an elder in a church as he became an adult. And, and that's not to say that if you magic, parents, if you magically bring your kids to church every Sunday, that they're for sure going to do that. And that's also not to say that youth ministry is evil and don't do it. It's just to illustrate the point that a lot of times we equate ferocious activity with church stuff, with maturity. And that's just not the case. God doesn't work because of our ferocious activity. God works through his ordinary means, in his time, through his people. And so the, the two kind of applications of that is don't despise the little things and don't lose confidence in the little things. All right? God works in those little ways, even if the world thinks they're simple and foolish and outrageously dumb. But the other point is please do not put your hope and your ability to do the little things. Your hope as a believer is not in the faithfulness of your church attendance. Your hope as a believer, especially parents, is not in how faithful you are in catechizing your kids, bringing them to the wonderful Sunday school programming that we have here. Like, that's not your hope. Like, your hope, your eggs aren't in that basket. Your eggs are in the basket of looking to Christ, whose mission led him to the cross, right? Who died as a propitiation for your sins. So that through his vicarious and substitutionary atonement, all of our sin could be taken away. And that we be given not a task to do, but a savior to believe, to repent and believe that he might give us a righteousness that we can never earn. And so our hope isn't in our ability to do those little things. Our hope is in the savior who came and called us to himself, that we might grow up like that we might grow up like plants from the ground to the fullness of time until when? Growth isn't for the sake of growth. Growth points towards the harvest because Jude 6 says there's a day that's going to come. There's a day that's going to come. We call that judgment. And that's when Christ comes and gathers all the people in for the harvest. And what happens then? The wheat and the chaff are separated those who have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are receptive to what God is doing, those are the wheat that are taken into glory. And the chaff, those that are outside, even what they think they have, that is taken away. So the purpose of the kingdom is to prepare God's people for the return and the judgment of the king. And it's little, and it's ordinary, and it's slow, But that's what the kingdom is marching us towards as God's people. And we have to prepare ourselves for that because all of us have to go before that great white judgment throne. And are you going to plead Christ on your behalf or are you going to plead, look at what I've done. And the kingdom is preparing us to plead for what Christ has done for us. And when he comes back, that's it. That's the end. And when I say that's the end, I'm not, the kingdom's not over. 
It's not like it's the cessation of the kingdom. When Christ comes back, that's the end. That's the consummation of the kingdom. That's the consummation. That's what the end result, not the end of the existence. And the end result, brothers and sisters, is incomparably greater, incomparably bigger than what you could ever imagine. Jesus says it in verse 30. He says, what shall I compare the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds. Not actually the smallest of all seeds, but let's not read too much into that. It's a very small seed. The kingdom of God is a very, very small seed that when it's planted and it grows, it grows larger than any other plant in the garden. It is going to offer shade. It's going to offer housing for the birds of the air. The kingdom is going to start small. It is surely and imperceptibly going to grow until the end when it is larger than all other things and comparably larger than what it started to. So God's kingdom, for all its smallness, for all its slowness, for all its perceived weakness and foolishness in the eyes of the world, is going to grow and grow and grow into something incomparably larger than what you and I could ever imagine Jesus says also in the Gospel of John, in my Father's house there are many rooms, large enough to provide homes for all his people, protection for all his people. Now, this would be understandably difficult to to believe and understand if you were an Israelite, right? This was a people that have been historically oppressed by many of the largest empires in the history of the world. Right When God called Abram and said, I'm going to give you a family. You're going to have more kids in the sand, uh, sand of the seashore. You're going to be a great family. Where did Israel grow to be great? In Egypt. So when they became many of number, they were slaves in Egypt. And then they got rescued and they got brought into Canaan and eventually had a great and wonderful kingdom. But then they were conquered by Assyria. And then they were displaced by Babylon. And then Persia came in. And then Alexander the Great came in, and the Greeks, and now the Jewish people are living and operating in the shadow of the Roman Empire. So how can you, Jesus, say that the kingdom of God is going to be this big and glorious thing like a mustard tree bush seed and, and give shade to all the birds? Well, a Jewish person listening to this, there's going to be a very specific picture that it probably conjures up. There's a picture in Ezekiel 31 of of trees on a mountain. Trees on a mountain that are large. They're going to house the birds of the air. They're going to give shade to those all around it. And it's this great and glorious kingdom picture. But it's not God's kingdom. It's actually the kingdom of Egypt. It's Pharaoh. So this picture that Jesus is alluding to most likely has to do with this picture of a worldly kingdom, of a kingdom that oppressed God's people, of a kingdom that was large and powerful, And that's the picture that God is using for this kingdom imagery here. But as you read Ezekiel 31, it goes on to talk about how eventually those trees are going to get chopped down. Those birds aren't going to have a place to go. Those animals that were flourishing in that kingdom are going to be killed and destroyed. That kingdom that was so large and so great is going to be destroyed. And not only destroyed, but it's going to be displaced. It's going to be displaced by a greater kingdom and a greater king. And so what we have in this parable is a picture and a promise of the consummation of the end, of that great and glorious day 
when Christ comes, not to just extract his people from a sinful and fallen world. The, the promise of heaven is not to be extracted from a sinful, broken world and to go up into the sky with Jesus. The promise of heaven is the consummation of history, is the end of all things when Christ comes back and says, I am making all things new. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. And behold, there will be a new heaven a new earth coming down from the clouds and a city, the new Jerusalem is going to come down and the Lamb says, come, eat and drink and be together as a family. The old heaven, the old earth, the kingdoms of this world, they will be destroyed. They will be displaced and there will only be the final and full kingdom of God here on earth. And that kingdom is not going to be contained to one country, one strip of land in the Middle East. That kingdom, that country is going to be all the earth. All the earth will be finally and fully filled with the glory of God's people. And what's right there in the middle of that city, that new Jerusalem, where the, where the river of life is flowing out? There, there's a tree. There's a tree of life, and it has leaves for the healing of the nations. A tree for all people to find shade and comfort and protection in the lamb that was slain but is now resurrected so that we might eat the glorious marriage supper as a family. So, all God's people, through all times, through all the earth, might look to him the one who died and was resurrected and ascended and is coming back to make all things new. They look to him and say, that is where I'm going to live forever. That is what it means to have more and more added to me. That is what it means to live in the kingdom of God forever. So this is the end to which the kingdom of God, the kingdom on heaven is going to progress. It's going to start small. It's going to grow surely and often imperceptibly but it's going to grow and be the greatest and most glorious thing that you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has promised to save your people through Jesus. We thank you that you're a God who has given us a place to live, that you are a God who promises that your kingdom will come and be consummated in glory that will fill all the earth there will be a new heaven and a new earth and that all the broken things, all the sad things will pass away and be untrue and that we will live as your people in glory with you forever. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us wait until then. Help us to resolutely fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to lock our arms together so that we might be encouraged all the more as the day draws near. Lord Jesus, we long for you to come and bring us home. Until then, we wait for you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.